Hi, my name is Paul Pigat. Uh, I am a multi-instrumentalist that primarily plays at a band called Cousin Harley, and you are listening to Talking Blues. So you recently came back from Hornby Island. I was, yeah, I was on Hornby with uh, with uh, a bunch of um, Canada's great blues musicians. Jack DeKaiser was one, I think. Jack DeKaiser, David Gogo, uh, Emily Burgess, Morgan Davis, wow. uh, Angel and Dee, from, who live on Hornby Island, that are fantastic uh, musicians from Quebec. Um, and I'm sure there's there's a few other... Oh, of course, my drummer, Jesse Cahill, was on the gig as well. Um, and uh, Jack Lavin from Powder Blues. Oh, nice. So yeah. tell me, I've heard about this musical camp, if that's the right term for it, maybe a musical getaway. But tell me what what it is and, and what you get out of that. Well, it's a camp that's been going for about 24 years now. I have participated... I think this was my 14th time teaching at this camp. And um, it's for me, well, of course, it's, it's a great opportunity. I've been an educator since I was a kid. I, I was, you know, I went to School of the Arts and I taught at the School of the Arts and I went to university and I taught there um, while I was studying. And I, I love teaching when I have, you know, students that are very interested. And this is a great opportunity because these people, are there for a very specific reason. They want to enjoy a week of music with some of Canada's finest blues musicians and, uh, and learn. So, uh, you know, I, the first time I did it, I thought, wow, this is the most wonderful place ever because I'd been to Hornby Island before. And I truly think it is the jewel of the West coast. And uh, you know, it's, it's grueling. It's a grueling schedule. I'll tell you that it's not an easy one. You know, you start teaching at nine 30 in the morning, which is not easy for, most musicians. <laughs> uh, and you do about six hours of teaching every day. Um, and then you perform every night. And are you teaching a classroom or is it one-on-one or I don't even know how many people actually go to the island. Ah, so it's, it's, uh, I think there's about nine, they allow 90 people. It always sells out. And you're usually teaching to a classroom of about 10, 10 to 12 people. Uh, and you have a major class, which happens every morning on the same subject matter. And then the afternoons, you have minor classes and you can sort of jump around and do whatever you want with those and, and do something maybe a little more interesting um, or a little bit more eclectic. Like I always do something on Scotty Moore or this year we did we did a class on Cousin Harley, which I thought my drummer's on the gig. So why not just do it? Why not just kill two birds with one stone, get our classes together and we'll just show how you play with someone after 20 years, you know, how the, the kind of connection you have after that long. So. Wow. But yeah, it's it's um, it's every spring. I think they've only can well, they canceled two for COVID. Uh, no, they canceled one. They canceled 2000. No, they canceled two. Uh, 2020, 2021, they canceled. Um, but every it's every spring. And it's, uh, you know, it's usually the, the, you know, May is the gateway into into the festival season. And this is the perfect way to set up a festival season. Like, it's just it's everything is calm and cool and you're there amongst people that just want to have a great time and learn and learn something. And you're surrounded by all this beauty. The food is always fantastic. The people who run it uh, have been, you know, there's a lot of original members that, that have been running it since the very beginning. And they're just, it's awesome. It's, it's, I'm trying to get Kevin in it. Yeah. I want to get Kevin in it because Kevin would love it. 
So tell me what you get out of it. You said you've been oh. teaching all your life, but what does something yeah. like this do for you? Oh, well, it's, you know, for me, well, first of all, it's a wonderful getaway. That's first and foremost. But, um, you know, I've, on, on the on the business side of things, you know, I get, I, of course, am performing and I'm you know, selling my products and I've got return, return, um, students that I've, that I've gotten out of this gig, but really, you know, I think for me, it's, I treat, I'm a very urban person, but when I hit Hornby Island, I, I'm no longer an urban person. <laughs> I truly change. Like I just go, Oh yeah, I could totally do this. You know, this is, this is totally could be my way of, of living, you know? Uh, but then I, you know, when I think about it, maybe a week's is just enough. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really it. And, and, and you, you know, every once in a while, you'll get a student that's just um, like, there's this young kid, Farley, who I've been teaching and, and, um, and uh, you, you just meet someone that's really special. You know, Farley, Farley is, uh, you know, um, he's a little different than everybody. You know, he's, he's a little bit on the spectrum and, and, uh, and Farley has such a unique way of looking at music and, and his, he has no boundaries when it comes to playing. Uh, like last year, he asked me 20 minutes before the student concert, which they do every Thursday night. And he says, Paul, will you play with me? And I said, of course, I'll always play with you, Farley. What do you want to play? He says, do you know Mediterranean Sundance? <laughs> and I said, are you asking me with 20 minutes notice to play Paco de Ligia and Aldo Emilio? I said, Okay. Let's do it, and we did it. And then this year, I forget I forget the name of the song, but it was. And I I know my Django repertoire pretty good, but it was a Django tune that I I was not familiar with, and from his later period, from his you know. Um, and I said, really, you that's what you want to play? We're at a we're at a blues camp. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's whatever challenges them. So you know, you get you get to have that that experience with these with these young musicians that are really really excited. You know, so it, it's sort of after you've been doing as long as I have, you know, sometimes that that's a, a nice, a nice reminder. I've heard a number of people who teach talk about that aha moment that the students get and how much that means to them because they've been there. Absolutely. You know, when, when you see that door crack open in their mind and they, and they, they finally figured out that what I've been talking about, you know, maybe it was for an hour, maybe it's been for a month, maybe it's been for two years. Um, but when they get it, then I get all excited because I know, okay, now I can, now we can go over to this and we can talk about this. And, you know, and, and also, you know, with me teaching is always a great way to, to sort of keep your own, your own skill level up. Cause you know, it's quite easy to forget things and, and, or neglect things in your playing. And, and when you're looking at a student, you can see what, you know, maybe what they need to work on. And then sometimes you go, wait, I haven't worked on that myself in a while. So then, you know, it sort of just re reinvigorates what you're doing. So before you go, what kind of preparation work goes into a week at Hornby Island? <laughs> well, yeah, well, for me, that's, I'm different than most. But <laughs> um, when I first started with Hornby, it's not quite as crazy as what I used to do. I used to have basically a book. I would I would transcribe, you know, if I was doing acoustic blues, I would transcribe, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Blake, uh, you know, I, I go, I go crazy, and I just do all these transcriptions, and it, it's nuts. And like this, you know, trying to teach a group of ten people that, you know, are there for a good time, try and teach them Blind Blake is no fun. <laughs> so I realized, I realized after the first couple of years that I didn't need to 
I didn't need to prepare quite as much. Um, but my, you know, I always have, I always, I always sort of think of what I'm going to teach. Like generally with me, I'm one of their main finger style teachers. So, you know, even though these people are blues oriented people, I always try and incorporate a little bit of Merle Travis in there. Cause you know, it's, that's more my jam and that's where I'm coming from. That's, that's why they hire me is cause that's what I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's always that. And, and some years are a little bit more prepared than others. You know, I remember about maybe about 10 years ago, uh, I wrote everything for I did no transcriptions I just wrote original material and I taught only original material to the class <laughs> well this is a this is a ragtime tune I just wrote a ragtime tune this one is a, a country blues song here's a country blues song I wrote or here's a bunch of western swing or or jump blues lines that I wrote out and then other times it's you know it because it, I've done so many of them it's uh you know I've it's always a challenge to come up with something new and interesting, but then, you know, there is a lot of turnover with the audience, with the, with your student load. So, you know, if it was, if I, if I was less into work, I would just regurgitate some lessons, but I never do. <laughs> and then I get my mentally, I'm psyched up because, you know, it's you're, the hang is always fantastic. Cause you're, you're hanging with, well, like we, we, we named all the people that were there this year, but, um, you're, you're hanging with great musicians that you haven't seen in ages. And, and, you know, I know a lot of the people that go to the camp. I've become friends with them over the last 20 years. So, you know, you're psyched up and getting all excited. Gonna go see those people have fun and so crazy stuff. I don't know if I read this correctly. Was, was your first instrument a stand-up bass? Yes, it was. it was. Okay. So, but you started playing guitar at the age of 11. At 11. So I started, I started playing stand-up. I guess I guess I was ten when I started playing stand up, um, and you know I lived in Toronto. I lived in in Downsview, sort of Jane Shepherd area. Right. And but I wasn't very close to my school, so you know I just remember you know I was really into the stand up base. I really thought it was cool. Okay, so um, tell me, there's <laughs> debate as to whether you came from a musical family or not. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> don't tell my mother. Don't tell my mother. I know your mom says you came from a very musical family, but but tell me about how you that that initial attraction to the stand up bass, and I I presume you might you must have been a tall kid at taste. I was a pretty big kid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was. I was. I was. Yeah. I was pretty much my full height by the time I was thirteen or something. Um, but you know, it was you know grade whatever it was, grade six or seven that I you know you go in, you get either band or you get orchestra. Uh, and before that, you know, there was no music. And I walked into orchestra class because I was chosen for the orchestra. Well, wait a second. Well, I... Sorry, wasn't there Nana Muscuri and Zamfir? Well, all right. With this, yes. The paint, well, the band, if I ever have to listen to the Lonely Shepherd, <laughs> man, I might have to just, I might give it all up, man. <laughs> and not to say it's not amazing. No, no. You know? Not, and and uh, I wish I could name off some of Nana Muscuri's uh, material. Like that, <laughs> but no, been, no other I music. That. that So yeah. you walk in cold, you're not really sure much about band or orchestra. No, like I was, you know, of course, I listened to the radio as a kid. And, uh, you know, when I was, uh, we had family uh, up in northern Ontario, and there was a fair amount of Charlie Pride uh, going on in that family. So I, you know, I had a, I had a subtle appreciation, but there was no... No, uh, not like I was coming home and music was playing or stuff like that. So, um, so I thought, well, what's the only instrument in this orchestra that you could play rock and roll on? <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, Sting plays upright bass. Uh, although I don't think I, I actually, actually, not looking back, 
I don't think there, I had ever even noticed that Sting, <laughs> you know, Sting was still an electric bass player at that point. Right. Um, but I thought, well, there's a bass and there's bass in, in music that I listen to. So I took up the bass and, um, you know, we first parent teacher meeting, uh, my, my teacher at the time said, you know, Paul is obviously very interested in music. So, because I literally had zero interest in anything else, <laughs> like nothing else. But did you uh, just become obsessed with the bass or music once you started playing? Well, I was really into it, but no, like the, for the, I'll tell you why I stopped playing bass <laughs> because that's, that's when I switched over to guitar and that's when it kicked in. Um, I remember I, they said that I could take my instrument home. <laughs> And I said, yeah, yeah, I totally want to take my bass home. And I'm 10 or 11. I don't know how old I am. Um, and I've, I'm carrying this bass, you know, and I got to walk about a kilometer to get to the bus stop. <laughs> and then I get to the bus stop and I try and jam this thing. And I'm 10, right? And I'm trying to jam this bass on the bus. And I said, forget that, man. I'm not playing this thing anymore. <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. Although I still I play, I continued to play it for many years, you know, um, as a, as a side thing. But yeah, I said, this is, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to, I don't want to be hauling around something that's quite this large. And it was also my brother, because I really wanted to be a drummer because I thought drummers were cool. And he said, are you crazy? Look at it. My brother said, are you crazy? Look at all the stuff you got to carry. <laughs> and then, and you know, about three or four years later when I was, you know, I was about 16 playing in the downtown Toronto area. I used to, like, as I mentioned, I lived up at Jane and Shepherd. So I would take the Jane bus from, you know, to the Jane street station. Then I would, and I had a house gig at the black bull at the time. And then I would take the subway across the Bloor line. Then I would get on the university line and I would go down to queen street. And then I would catch the streetcar all carrying a Telecaster, a bag of pedals and a Fender super reverb. So, I th- I'm not sure that that's any easier than carrying a drum kit on a on a bus. It's about the same amount of weight, um, so it really didn't matter in the end how heavy it was. It was just as long as I could pick it up. You know, that was I think the most important. Thing. So your first connection with music was rock and roll, yeah, rock music, yeah. rock music, and this is what you wanted to pursue with your guitar. Yes, I was. I was. I was very much a rock, like as a kid, because it was the 80s, right? It was the early 80s. So like 82, 83, 81, 82. Um, so, you know, ACDC, Sabbath, Zeppelin. You know, I was of that ilk, you know? So that's, that's where I wanted to go. Very guitar-driven music. So that's, you know, once I discovered that, that you know, that I, I could get a guitar, because, you know, there was no guitar in my house. And I finally got a guitar and I thought, oh, well, this is how you do it. And then I, and then, yeah, that was, it was the rock music that really got me interested. So I know that ACDC, because when I read your interviews, ACDC comes up a lot, like surprisingly oh, it's amount. Awesome. It's awesome music. <laughs> and I Bond love Scott. what you said about it being the music that you first connected to and you still connect to. I still love ACDC. You can't, yeah. How can you not love ACDC? True. <laughs> oh, it always astounds me when someone says, oh, I don't like ACDC. Well, you might not like one or two of their songs, but you got to <laughs> love a band that has figured out the formula for their project and they just keep doing it. <laughs> and, you know, there's, of course, there's the Bon Scott, Brian Johnson camps. You know, I'm, I like both. I like both. Um, I love that it's blues driven. It's blues driven rock and roll. And 
I love, and most people don't, I don't, I think most people don't understand how important Malcolm Young was to that band. Just those simple, simple chord progressions that are just so effective, you know, and, um, all right, the subject matter at times can be a little, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know, I think there's a few tunes from their catalog that you just can't play anymore. Um, but, but also the the beauty of the beauty of, of this simplistic idea and and that it's actually formatted very well. You know, it's really smartly formatted rock and roll. That's for sure. So at eleven, you pick up the guitar. Does the guitar come easy to you? Does this this playing rock music become a simple thing? No, no. I, if anything, I am a very stubborn person. And um, I was not one of those people that, that just picked up a guitar and instantly figured it out. No, I spent a lot of time. I, I was a pretty, I was a pretty solitary kid. I didn't have a lot of friends and I, and I wasn't, I was very, very painfully shy, which is incredible that I am like now because I'll say anything on a microphone <laughs> now. Um, I don't care. <laughs> but as a kid, I was just mortified to, to, to be around people. So, you know, I spent a lot of time at home, a lot of time just plunking away and, you know, playing, playing Tony Iommi riffs and stuff like that. And, and I worked hard and then, and, you know, um, that's why I decided to, to continue with, you know, going to school for it. Cause I just wanted to be good at this. And, 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 I, and it wasn't something that came easy right after that. Was, was there a moment where you figured out something and you thought, I, I got to do this. This is what I want to be doing. Hmm. An actual moment. Well, I think the first time I probably jumped on stage. Okay. Yeah, so you were doing that. Very, what, what age was that? I'd be probably about 13. 13. So uh, I was playing in a little band and, and uh, a group of people, let's not call it. it. It eventually turned into a band. Um, and our drummer, his dad was a solo entertainer. And there used to be a place at uh, Keel and Dufferin called, no, Keel and uh, Dufferin and Wilson. It was called the Diplomat Tavern. And, um, and he invited us all to come out and play. And I said, oh, this, this, I was excited. And we got up and, and it was terrible and it was wonderful. <laughs> it sounded terrible. It felt wonderful. Um, and I loved it. I love, I love the whole idea. Like, especially for me being so completely introverted that I was like, I could be in front of people, but I was hiding behind my guitar. Um, and then, you know, within a year we were playing the diplomat tavern <laughs> at 13, you know, or 14 years old, we were already playing that bar. Like they, the eighties were an interesting time in Toronto because I don't think liquor laws really existed for <laughs> underage children. Cause I seem to, I seem to have gotten into all of them. I never had a problem getting into a bar and playing. So do you remember what you, you know. played in that first gig? Do can you remember any songs that you played? No, maybe, maybe. And I don't know, maybe Hollywood nights. Wow. By Bob Seger. Maybe Hollywood nights. Yeah. That'd be about the right time period for that. Okay. So I find it so interesting that some, because this is not that unusual that a performer is very shy. Mm. And I don't know what it is about that music that allows them to come out of their shell. But describe that for me. As a really shy kid, getting on stage w would seem very frightening to me. But it obviously wasn't for you. <laughs> no, and, and I think the reason it wasn't is was because of the people I was playing with. 
we were very like I, I like as I said I didn't have many friends but the friends that I did have were really they were I felt deeply like these I had a big connection with these people so um, I felt safe there because I was with my buddies and um, and you know back then the crowds were you know because we were but just kids we were just little children and the crowds were really you know very supportive. So, you know, you, you're scared at first, but then once you hit the first chord and everybody goes, yeah, and then, and you go, all right, this doesn't suck. You know, <laughs> but, you know, performing solo, solo was, a, you know, now I'm, now I'm very comfortable. In fact, I'm even more comfortable performing solo than I am with the band. But uh, the first, you know, when I was in university and, and doing adjudications and stuff like that, that's stressful. And that would really, that was, that was hard for me to do. Okay. So. This is like one of the questions that I had is, so you start off listening to ACDC and Black Sabbath. You, you're in a rock band making lots of noise. At one point or another, you decide, I'm going to go to U of T and go for classical guitar and composition. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Okay, well, well, I, I'd, I, guess, I guess by about grade 11, I was obviously, this was something that I thought I was going to do. You know, regardless if I'm good at it or not, this is what I'm going to do. And do you know I, what this is? Like, what is it that you, that this thing was that you were going to do? It's somehow music-based. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I wasn't sure if I was, you know, I, 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 I'm I still not sure if I'm good enough to be a performer. Um, but I really loved the puzzle of music. So uh, I started going to the, the Royal Conservatory. So I went to the Royal Conservatory and I studied there in grade 11. And then for grade, um, promptly told by one of my, not one of my music teachers, but one, one of the other music teachers that, because uh, I wanted to go to Claude Watson School of the Arts. I said that, you know, I wanted to really check that out. And they said, oh no, you'll never get in. And so I, you know, I suffered another year of grade 12 in my, in my school. And, and I said, forget it. I'm going to audition for Claude Watson School of the Arts. And I got in there no problem that was that was actually i was surprised at how easy it was for me to get into that so you pretty good by this time i'm all right you know i can play pretty well i could sight read a little bit but i could you know i could improvise a little bit but i really didn't know what i was doing i was purely playing by feel and ear by this point and how how, sorry Um, sorry to interrupt but how much what's your appreciation of classical music at this point it was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> there, every, there's so much shred guitar that was classically oriented, right? Oh, you know, you've got true. Richie Blackmore. You've got Yngwie Malmsteen. You've got, um, oh, what was the, there was that great band from Japan. Um, <laughs> oh, I can't remember. Long hair, long hair, really, 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 that kind of stuff, right? So I thought, oh, this sounds like classical music to me. Um, so when I went to the School of the Arts, I, you know, I got into, I, I got, I got exposed to things that I never been exposed to. I got exposed to jazz music. I was really interested in that. I thought, wow, this is, this is something I've never experienced before. Um, and then I had some great, uh, more contemporary, uh, minded, um, teachers there that were into 20th century music. And that's what, when I heard 20th century classical music, that's when I really got excited. I thought, this is great. Um, because I think Stravinsky is the beginning of heavy metal. And I think Debussy is the beginning of jazz. Um, so that really got me interested. And, 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 I, and I, by that point, I, I knew that this, you know, I, if I was going to do this, I better figure out how this stuff worked. 
but but are you think so what are you thinking by going to u of t and 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 rcm and doing classical music what do you see your future in music to be i i really wanted to be a composer i really wanted to i wanted to, and the, and i think the reason i wanted to be a composer wasn't necessarily to compose music i just wanted to understand how it worked i wanted to know how people put sounds together to make things that I heard. Um, I still, to this day, am searching for the magic key and figuring out how Stravinsky put together his harmonic structures. Um, but that was really the driving force, was not necessarily because I had a goal. I had never had a goal. I still don't have a goal. When I grow up, I might become, I don't know, a bus driver. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's how much goal I've had in my life. Other than I am completely infatuated with the guitar and I and I just want to figure out how music works. And so by this time, puzzle. you don't really care what, what genre you're playing. It's music. No. It's guitar. It's music. Yeah. I And, you know, I was playing in... I was playing while I was going to university. I was playing in blues bands around Toronto. I was playing in sort of, um, you know, so what, what I guess now would be called Americana or alt country bands. But, you know, it was when Blue Rodeo was playing around Toronto at the same I was in bands that had that similar kind of vibe. Um, yeah, I, I would take any gig. You know, the weirdest gig I ever took was when I I'm going to jump forward just just a couple of years, just because this is the craziest gig I've ever done. <laughs> Well, maybe not. No, I've done weird, crazier gigs than this. But this was the first crazy gig. I, uh, you know, I'm classically trained. I have a degree at this point, and uh, I, I had no gigs. I had nothing. There was nothing going on. And I'm looking through Now Magazine, and it said Yodeler, willing to play with anyone. <laughs> and I'm going, going, this guy's desperate, and I'm going to play with him. And that was one of the strangest things I know. <laughs> Especially when I showed up and he was Italian and he sounded just like Wolf Carter. It was like, this is insane. <laughs> and I loved it. I thought this is the craziest stuff ever and I'm going to do it. <laughs> so what did that classical training and that background that you acquired from U of T give you? What, what, what did it do for you as a musician? I don't think it gave me the understanding of music I was looking for. I, I like I know all the I know all the theory behind it, but I didn't know how to put it into practice. What it did do is it 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 uh, it gave me a, a friendship with with Ellie Kastner, and Ellie was my mentor, and um, Ellie gave me confidence that I could that you know he he threw me in situations that I thought why are you throwing me in this situation of all people because I was not his best student, but I was one of his most open minded students. Um, you know, like he would, he would bring guitar players from, from Cuba to come and play, to perform at the university and, and they would stay at his house and I would teach at his house and, and uh, he would say, Paul, you must come downstairs and, and play some blues with these kids. I, I, I don't know any Cuban music, Ellie. That's okay. They don't know how to play the blues either. <laughs> We're just going to get them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was really important. Like my time with Ellie and Ann Kastner were, were very, very important years. Um, Ellie taught me how to, how to really think about music and how to, how to practice properly and how to feel music. Like while other teachers were telling me to do things that were on the page, Ellie wouldn't care what we, like he would, if something was really wrong, like notes or notes, but expression, you know, um, and how to, how to do like, you know, 
I'm completely uneducated in my first year of university when it comes to really, you know, looking at, at the finer details to a score. And Ellie would say, you know, Paul, your, your rubato is beautiful. I said, why is it beautiful? It says, by the, you know, you start and you slow down and you speed up and you slow down and speed up. But at the end, it's exactly where it's supposed to be. And I didn't know that. And, and you know, if I, had, if I had done that with another teacher, they would have said, no, 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 this is where you slow down here. And then, oh, no, this is in time. And then this is, then you're going to speed up to catch up to the meter of the piece. And Ellie was just more organic. And he, he sort of opened up a door for me. Uh, it was a big door. Yeah. So you start with rock. Then you go through this classical music phase of composition and, and playing. Then you kind of go into swing jazz. Swing jazz. Country. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Country. Well, you know, there's also another because of this sort of rootsy Americana stuff that we were doing in the in the early. Well, I guess that would be the the, early, the late '80s, early '90s. You know, of course, the Stray Cats are out, and um, and I've always loved West Coast swing, West Coast jump blues. That's always been my thing. You know, I'm not a Chicago guy; I'm a West Coast jump guy. Um, so, you know. With rockabilly, you know, there's a lot of rockabilly in there as well. So that's also in the mainstream at the time. Right. And there were some great bands around Toronto at the time. There was the the, the Razorbacks, and and of course uh, they're a little late for the for the Bobcats, but um, the Tin Eddies were were a band that I went to go see many times, and I really loved that sound. Um, but then, so I you know classical music, then into yeah jazz swing. So jazz swing. Um, I was definitely, you know, because I, I had been teaching at Ellie's place for all through my university career. So I had taught there for four years and I taught there for another year um, after I finished university. And there was a guitar player who also taught there named Rob Campbell, who I believe still plays around Toronto. And I used to love listening to him practice, you know, because I knew nothing about jazz. I was just, you know, I could hear him play and go, this is just the most beautiful stuff ever. And I was always leaning towards doing like guitar transcriptions of Debussy because I love that sound, that sort of dominant ninth sounds and big major seven sounds. And, um, and then when I moved out, I moved out West in 94 and um, I'd always been the kid that had the gigs because I was the young kid, right? And I wasn't quite the young kid anymore. I was 24, still, you know, still relatively young, but um I couldn't get any work. I could not get any work, no matter what I tried. Uh, so I just decided, all right, well, I guess I'm going to become a singer. Because if I want to do this, I'm going to have to be a singer. And I said, well, who do I like to listen to sing? Well, I said, I really like Tony Bennett. And I really like Billie Holiday. I love Ella Fitzgerald. So I just started singing that stuff. And then, you know, I had a, I had a gig working at a music store in Sydney-by-the-Sea. It was the most depressing little music store because nobody would ever come in. Like literally, if I saw two customers in a day, I thought, oh my God, it's a rush. Whew, I'm exhausted. I, I sold two packs of strings or something. So I had all this time on my hands. And there was a, you know, there was an old Gibson art stop there and I had a little copy of the pocket real book. And I just decided I was going to learn every Ellington tune in the pocket real book. And that's how it all started with the jazz swing thing. So, is it driven more by the the need to sing? Well, originally, I think the, the the reason I started my band was was because well, I started the you know the Smoking Jackets, which is my first real band that I fronted, um, was because I had 
I just needed to make a living. And, and I was interested in this music. Um, but prior to that, like the, the, the whole learning of, of, you know, the jazz, my version of jazz, because I'm not jazz trained. I'm, I've got my own way of thinking about it is because I just needed to unlock it. I had to figure out the puzzle. If I, if I can't figure out the puzzle, it drives me crazy. Yeah. So I had to go, well, why do these, all right, why does that go there? And then why, and then go, okay, that I've seen that before, but that's a variation of it. And then, and then all of a sudden, all the years of university and all the theory training that I learned, of course, they're focusing on very atonal things back then. Uh, I think university, uh, music is, is not nearly as atonal as it was when I was, when I was there. Um, but then all of a sudden, all these wonderful theories that you go, okay, well, this is what Bach, this is how Bach did this. And you go, this is exactly the same thing, but this is Ellington doing it in his own way. And then it's, everything started to come together. That's what I, I think that's when, when the universe, all the education I got from university finally clicked in was when I, when I started playing jazz and I go, right now I get it. So maybe I should have just studied jazz, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> okay, so what about the singing? Like, how easy was that? Oh, it was terrifying. Now that's terrifying. <laughs> because I'm not hiding behind my guitar anymore. That was terrifying. Um, it was not easy, you know. Uh, so this is, so I get, so I'm, I just moved to Victoria. Um, and, you know, it's the jam scene. So I would go out to the jams and I would be, I'd be a sort of floating guitar player. And then I learned how to said, okay, well, I got to start singing. I like it or not. And I was terrified. I hated singing. Um, I was not comfortable with my voice at all, but I learned a couple of songs and I started singing them at the jams. And, uh, and then someone came up to me and said, listen, our singer can't make the gig next week. So can you, can you front our band? I said, yeah. Cause I was hungry, man. Like literally I was hungry. Like, I was, I was pretty poor. And I said, of course I can. And I had five songs. <laughs> so, so I said, so I, I, all week, I just crammed my head full of whatever I could. I thought, what, what's going to be easy for us to play? What's going to be something that I can remember. And I can't remember any of those songs now. So I did it. And then, and at the end of the night, they said, that was great. Thanks, man. And I, so thanks. If you ever need ever need me to come back, let me know. He says, "Well, it just so happens that our singer is not going to be here next week either." So I said, "Great, I'll be back." And I learned a few more tunes. And then at the end, sorry, of the what night, kind of music said, is this now? Oh, this is all over the board. This was like I did some I did some stray cats, I did some blues tunes, I probably did some country stuff because you know just radio stuff that I had heard over the years. It's probably some Johnny Cash in there. Who knows? Um, so I finished the next gig and I said, thanks, man. That's great. You know, if you need me to come back again. And they said, yeah, yeah, we need you to come back. Again. <laughs> so this happened two or three times. And then finally I realized that it was my gig at that point. Um, and Victoria is, is a wonderful place, especially then in the early nineties, it was a wonderful place um, because there's the Naden military band there. Uh, and Victoria is also a place where of course, a lot of retired people go. Um, so the band had some really great players in it, like some, some people that were in the military band, Naden band. Uh, and there was a lot of fantastic jazz musicians in, in Victoria. How, how big is the band? Oh, it's a quartet. Okay. Quartet. Drums, bass, guitar, and trumpet. Um, 
And uh, I just sort of decided, you know, when because they were doing stuff all over, they were doing popular stuff and, you know, retro rock and roll and stuff, but they were all jazz musicians. So, and of course I wasn't. So I, I want to be a jazz musician. So you know what? I'm changing this. I'm the singer. It's my band now. <laughs> so I changed on them and I made it into the smoking jackets, which is a swing band. <laughs> Was that your comfort zone as a singer? Yeah, I felt much better, much much better singing singing, uh, you know, jazz and swing music. I don't know why, because I shouldn't. <laughs> it's way harder to sing, right? But I didn't have a powerful voice. Like now, I have a big powerful voice. But then I didn't have a powerful voice. But I had a pretty good soft voice, so I could sing like the ballads and stuff like that. And I loved singing the ballads. So, how long did it take for you to become comfortable with singing? To become comfortable, fully comfortable, that's so long ago. Um, I'd say a couple of years for me to, no, it was longer. For when I when I finally thought, okay, it's like there's, I forget, the, I read some interview or read some article on Jimi Hendrix and, and he heard himself on, on tape and he said, I can actually sing. Um, <laughs> I didn't have that realization for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until Cousin Harley, really. Cousin Harley, then I knew I could sing. Because I, I because you know, even though when Cousin Harley started, it was, you know, we played a lot of covers. But I would never play them the same way that, that the original artist did them. So I would make them my own. I'd, I'd make new feels for them. I'd make new arrangements for them. I'd put them in my own keys. And then I thought, okay, now I, now I think I can sing. Now I think I can sing. And what's the guitar playing like at this point? Pretty, you know, I listen back. Every once in a while, I'll listen back because there are some recordings from back then. The, the guitar playing is actually pretty advanced for for where I was conceptually. Like, you know, I was just, I still was figuring things out. And, um, but, you know, it's chromatic and very much uh, harmonic oriented. So, you know, I think, I think by that point, I had already established where I was going, you know, as a guitar player. And was it difficult to get that band... A following? No. The smoking jackets? No, it was easy. Because Victoria was a small town. You know, a lovely town, but a small town. Um, and uh, and it's also a tourist town. So, and I was playing with some of the best musicians in the city. So we instantly got a following. You know, it was a local following. We didn't, we didn't travel. We were just strictly local. Um, but no, it was quite quick quite quick that 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 we got we got a regular a regular crowd of people and and um yeah yeah it should have been harder i obviously didn't work at it <laughs> but so how did you okay so how did you become a, this guitar player that people know in the states and all over like how does that is that because of cousin harley or yeah well partially well actually it probably comes from um a person I know on, on Vancouver Island was going to start a, because he knew he was in it. He knew I was an educator, right? I've always been a teacher. So he started a video company, uh, a, a video lesson DVD company. And he asked me if I would do one. Uh, so I, I, I did three for it. I did rockabilly 101. I did introduction to fingerstyle, hillbilly fingerstyle. And I did jazz and up your guitar. Um, and they, because at the time there was nothing else, like there was no true fire. 
uh, homespun was not interested in anything that wasn't blues. Um, you know, there was, there was Arlen Roth's company that he was doing sort of more well-known guitarists and their personal styles, but just on straight instruction of how, what is Rockabilly? What is Merle Travis style playing? Um, so I did these three DVDs and they sold like hotcakes. Um, and that's how so many people got to know me was through these DVDs. Do you get the Gretsch deal because of that? Kind of. Yeah. So <laughs> I did. Uh, not because not because they knew who I was. They didn't know who I was. Um, a, a student of mine uh, who had who came to me because of the DVDs um, ended up deciding. You know, he's, he was very tech savvy, meaning that he owned a computer. Because <laughs> uh, at that point, I was completely not tech savvy, and I'm still not tech savvy. It took me ten minutes to log in. <laughs> so, um, but he decided that he was he was going to, you know, help me promote. So he made a little website for me, which I never had before. And um, he was an avid fan of Gretsch guitars. So, um, you know, he started posting my clips for my DVDs on the Gretsch pages, which at the time was the main Gretsch forum on, on, on the internet. And you're playing Gretsch at this point? At this point, I'm not playing Oh, Gretsch. you're not? Okay. This point, I'm only playing Gibsons. I'm only playing Gibsons at this point. Um, so I get booked to play at Viva Las Vegas, which is the big Las Vegas uh, Rockabilly Festival. It's still going. It's still probably the biggest Rockabilly event in the world every year. So I got booked to play the gig. And a whole bunch of people had contacted me from the Gretsch pages. And they said, we really want to meet you um, at your show. Can you meet us? And I said, yeah, we're, we're, where's a good place? So well, Gretsch is putting up a booth. And they said, why don't you meet us at the Gretsch booth? And I went to the Gretsch booth and, and I met all these guys that had my DVDs and I signed them all for them. They were really nice cats and I still keep in touch with a lot of them. And there was a guy there by the name of Joe Carducci. And Joe Carducci was, was basically the A&R guy for, uh, for Gretsch at the time. And they had a booth up and they had a bunch of guitars and, you know, and they had the new line of amplifiers. And, um, and just, you know, I was about to go and do my sets just, and, and Joe came out and says, hey, you want to play our guitars? And I had a beautiful 1965 ES-125 TDC with me. That was my baby. But I looked on stage and I hated all the amps they had on that stage. I said, I don't like any of these amps. But the Gretchen just made this line of amplifiers that was made by Victoria. So I said, you know, I'll make you a deal. I'll play your guitar if I can use your amp. But how do you know what that so, amp is going to sound like? Well, I'm all tube, 15 watts, single 15, tremolo and reverb. It's going to sound good. It's pretty hard to not sound good at that point. You know, it's like it got, it's kind of got all the things. It, it, but, you know, you're right. It was, a, it was a Hail Mary. But I kind of knew between a bunch of twin reverbs and that amp, I was going to go with that amp. Because for me to get a twin reverb to sound the way I wanted to, it would be mind-blowingly loud. So I said I wanted low wattage amps. So I knew that these were low wattage amps. I said, I'll, I'll play the guitars if I can use the amps. And uh, and I loved it. It was great. We had, you know, I played my show and it's loud. There's lots of weedly weedlies all over the place. Um, it's like a sausage fest over by my side of the stage because it's all it's all dudes. All dudes, my side. Over my bass player's side, all girls. All girls. I get I get the dudes. That's that's just the way it is. All right. And at the end of the and at the end of the um, at the end of the show, Joe walks up to the front of the stage and says, "What's your address?" 
And I gave him my address. I said, okay, these are all, this whole rig is going to be sent to your house tomorrow morning. Um, so he sent me the guitar and the amplifier. And, and, uh, and then he says, I want to have a meeting with you tomorrow. And then we set a meeting and then I, I was the clinician for Gretsch for, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe I still am. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, cause everybody, everybody that I knew from that time period is all retired. Um, so I think I, I'm still a Gretsch artist, but I don't know if I'm the clinician anymore. So Gretsch has a certain reputation with rockabilly, does it not? It does, which is really funny because there was very few guys that played Gretsch's. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be honest. There's Eddie Cochran and there's Cliff Gallup. That's, and, and, of course, Chet Atkins. But Chet Atkins, you can't really call him rockabilly. But most rockabilly was recorded on Telecasters. Right, okay. You know, or Les Balls. So when you become a Gretsch artist, does that mean that you're not allowed to play a Telecaster? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, no, I made it clear that I was going to play whatever I wanted. Um, but I, I did play my Gretsch's a lot. Um, they're great instruments. They're incredibly good instruments. In fact, uh, I, I designed one with Stephen Stern because I, you know, I, I like to build guitars. So I, um, I designed this guitar with, with Stephen and I have, I have the only one of those and it's, it's really ex- an exceptional instrument, but no, I, I made it clear that like, you know, I do a lot of different gigs like, you know, cause I like to do a lot of different stuff, right? I like to play in pop music. I like to play rock and roll. I like to play country. I like to play blues. And I said, I use a different guitar for every one of those gigs. So how about, you know, I'll certainly for important shows, I'll play the Gretches. But if they're, you know, if I'm playing a top 40 country gig, I'm not going to sound like Albert Lee <laughs> on your 63120. It's just not, the instrument just doesn't do it. So, okay. So that conjures up a few things. Um, Mm-hmm. One is the fact that you do so many different gigs. Is that just the way you are? Is that out of necessity? Is that what drives the fact that you play in rock bands, pop bands, country bands, blues bands? Like, why is that? Why does that happen? And 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 also, does that work against you, or does that just keep you busy enough that it doesn't work against you? I think it, it probably works against me because no one knows what I'm doing half the time. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think I think the reason I do them is because I'm always interested in learning something new, right? Even though whenever I play these gigs, I still sound like me. It's like I never. I'm, I'm not one of those guys that can morph into someone else. Right. It's always me playing this kind of music. But no, I, I just I just like to do different things, right? I like I like you know if if I only had one type of music I could you know that I would be able to play for the rest of my life, I don't think I'd be very happy. I think you know I. I'd, I'd like to have a have a wide variety of stuff to do, and that's always times. been the case. When you started Cousin Harley, that wasn't you weren't focused on that beyond anything. No, else. I still had the, I still had the smoking jackets going on. Uh, I was playing in a punk band called the Metronome Cowboys. Uh, I was I probably recorded Nico Case's first record at that time, which was more alt country. You know, I've always and then I you know I'm always trying to write finger style guitar stuff. So you know, no, I've always got to have a lot of different things going on. Okay, and one of those different things which you kind of alluded to was making guitars. I believe today you were working on one of your guitars. Oh, I finally got all the all the epoxy <laughs> off my hands. Yeah. So when when does that start? <laughs> did that start very early, or your love of building guitars? Where did that come from? I probably built my first. Well, I, I attempt. Let's say I attempted to build my first guitar when I was probably about thirteen, and I was a constant tinkerer. Cause I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. So I, I, my desire for expensive guitars was far greater than my 
financial means of getting them. So, you know, I would do things to guitars. Like I go, okay, I want, uh, once again, it was the eighties. So, <laughs> you know, I need a Floyd Rose. All right. I can't afford a guitar with a Floyd Rose. What can I do? All right. Well, I'll buy a Floyd Rose or I'll buy a knockoff of Floyd Rose, but I can't afford to get anybody else to install it. So I'll do it. I'll figure out how to do it. And, uh, so I, you know, I did that and then I would go, okay, well, I want a super strat this time. So, well, I can't afford a super strat, but I got this neck and I've got this pickup and I go, okay, I'll make a body for it. How hard could it be? Because my father had a workshop in the basement. So, uh, so I started like that. And then I, um, you know, I built a few more guitars over the years, but then when I moved out West, I didn't really have the ability to do it because I didn't have a workshop anymore. I, I, you know, I built a couple of guitars on my back porch or I restore old, I restored one of the first guitars I ever restored was, a, was an old Gretsch of all things. Um, which is kind of, yeah, quite ironic. <laughs> uh, and then, and then, you know, I was building, as I say, I was building them on my back porch. You know, I made these crazy instruments that I would just sort of part together. But then um, about, about 10 years ago, I, I ended up meeting the guy who makes my acoustic guitars, Warren Murphy. And uh, I would just hang out with him all the time because we designed guitars, you know, we, we designed a guitar together for me, an acoustic for me. So sorry, can you and, um, explain that a little bit? Tell me what's entailed in designing a guitar. In designing, well, it's, a, it's about, okay, what's the, what's the, first of all, what are the dimensions of the instrument? So what we did is we, we, we took some classic instruments and we modified them. So uh, we took a, like a 19, probably, a, well, a, a mid thirties Gibson L00. And I said, okay, I want an L00 style, style guitar, but I want it to be deeper. So I want it to be an, an inch thicker and I want a long scale on it. And then, you know, so meaning I want a 25 and a half inch scale as opposed to a 24 and three quarter inch scale. And are you thinking and, in terms of sound or the visuals? Sound. Always the sound. sound. Yeah. Cause I've always bought and sold guitars since I was a kid. So I've played a lot of guitars. I've owned a ridiculous amount of guitars. I still own a stupid amount of guitars. Um, so I'm really, I'm, I'm quite acquainted to what certain guitars will do and, and what they will make, what, what sounds they will make. So, you know, I was thinking I wanted the, I wanted the projection of a Martin, but I wanted the warmth of a Gibson. I wanted the size of that Gibson as well, because it's very comfortable to play. And then the radius on the board, you know, what radius I wanted on the fretboard. Um, cause I didn't want it too flat because that would feel more like a Martin and I, and I didn't want it too shallow to feel like a telecaster right you know i i, I wanted it you know, sort of right in the middle so i was very particular about what i wanted same thing i did with gretch um you know I, as i said after you've played as many guitars i've played you get to know what you like uh, which ones and you go well wouldn't it be great if you had that with that and then you and then you find someone that's crazy enough to build it <laughs> but when you say okay i want this this and this yeah. do you have a sense of what that could sound like yeah, I, I pretty much know where, where it's coming from. Yeah, where, where like it's always going to be a surprise, especially with acoustic instruments. But, you know, we go, okay, long scale. It's going to have a big authoritative bass. It means it'll be bright. So you need to balance that out, that brightness out with maybe a little bit of extra depth in the body or tone whatever woods you're going to use. You know, mahogany is going to be nice and warm. Um, the first guitar that we made, uh, I wanted to try something different. This was a Hail Mary because uh, I could have said, you know, I want it made out of Honda and mahogany. No problem. He had he had lots of it. I want to make it out of rosewood. No problem. He had lots of that. I said, "What's what's?" And also, I didn't want I didn't want him to use a lot of his expensive woods on our experiment. 
So I said, what, what, what else do you have here that maybe isn't quite so dear to you? And he pulled out this beautiful piece of walnut. And I said, okay, we're going to make it out of walnut. And it turned out wonderfully. Who knew that walnut kind of sounds a lot like rosewood? It's very bright, but with a low depth to it. So that was, a, that was an experiment. There's always a bit of, a bit of like, I don't know, maybe it's going to sound good. Maybe it's going to suck. Who knows? I'm not building it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but you are building one right now. Uh, I, well, I did a, you know, I've, I've, I've restored so many guitars over the years. Uh, and then I did a series of, uh, of guitars during the pandemic, which were called Sputniks. And I, the reason they were called Sputniks, this is, of course, before the, the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, I found a guy in, in Kiev who had a stockpile of Soviet-era Russian pickups. And I said, I've tried every pickup. I've played them all, but I've never heard these. So I had to buy them. So I bought, I bought a few sets of them. And they were awesome. They were just so weird. And, you know, the one I opened, the first thing I'm going to do is take them apart. I got to see what's inside of them. So I take one apart and it's so overbuilt. It's ridiculous. It's like a, it's like a Russian tank, right? It's all six little coils, all beautifully wired together in this series. God, man, nobody, nobody outside of Soviet era Russia would go to that much trouble to make a pickup. And then I'd open up the other one, which was a slightly different style. And it literally was a rat's nest of wire with a, with a magnet shoved in them. <laughs> and that one sounded even better. Um, so I, I built the, the first few I built were based on these pickups. So, you know, and I would do these, you know, I would sort of take things that I liked. Like I, I would, I would find elements of guitars that I like. I'm a big fan of European guitars. I love European guitars, especially from the, from the late fifties and into the sixties. Um, they just had style, incredible style. So when you say style, are we talking visual or visuals? Yeah, this is visual style. Okay. Um, you know, I would take, I would take, you know, my main, des- my main design was I would take the bottom part of the guitar and that was loosely based on a 1908 Washburn acoustic parlor guitar. And then the top of the guitar, like the, the horns of the guitar is where I would, I would have my creativity and I would, I would go, okay, this one's going to be. Jazz master inspired, but it's going to look like a Yolanda from Eastern Europe. Um, or I would do another one that was, okay, this is going to be, um, you know, a Les Paul style guitar, but it's going to be inspired by Antonio Poli, who built Wandres out of Italy. And I would just, you know, do whatever I want. And, and I would make these crazy things. Right. But right now, um, I, 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 my wife and I bought a piece of property, um, on the Sunshine Coast, because of course we can't afford anything here in Vancouver. We're renters here, so we bought this piece of property, and it's a lovely place with a with a wonderful, uh, wonderful little house on it. And we spend, you know, we spend weekends over there. And there was a there was a plank, there was a chunk of cedar just sitting on the ground that they that the previous owners had been using as a uh, as a as a step. And uh, I said, "Well, this is my property now. That means that's my wood." <laughs> I took that piece of wood again. I said, I'm making a guitar out of this piece. <laughs> so I started cutting, you know, I, I, I blocked it out and I trimmed it all up. So it was, you know, into a, into a blank. And I realized I had enough, I had enough for a Telecaster body. Out of that, that's a, that's the amount of good wood that I got out of this piece of wood. So uh, I went to the lumberyard and I found some beautiful figured maple. So I, you know, you can't just buy a piece. You got to buy the whole board. So I bought the whole board and I measured it out and I go, well, there's six necks there. 
So I guess there's six Telecasters. <laughs> I'm doing six Telecasters. <laughs> so is this for your own pleasure or are you, do you sell them? Why sell them? Yeah, okay. I've sold all my prototypes. I've sold, uh, I've, I've done lots of custom orders. Uh, but, you know, I just built, I build them and then we'll see if anybody wants them is, you know, uh, I don't care if they sell or not. You know, it'd be really great. It'd be really awesome because I could use the dough. Um, but it's the, it's really, I love, I love building them. I really love building them. Do you, I do love, you lose I love yourself? being able to figure it out. Oh, completely. So how different is that losing yourself than when you're playing music and being involved or when you're recording? Is it all connected? I think so. It's the same thing where I, it's always problem solving with me. I have to solve problems. I love solving problems. And guitar playing is all about solving problems to me. It's all about musical musical conversations right so you've got an you've got a question what's the answer that's how i see musical phrases as questions and answers i think a lot of people do as well and then guitar building is like okay i got this block of wood how do i make these two blocks of wood go together and not look like a bag of garbage (laughs) so so, you know once again because like warren was was always laughing at me because you know i i go no 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 i'm not doing a bolt-on neck because that's too easy. No, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do my first guitar I'm ever going to do. I'm going to do a set neck, but I'm not going to do a symmetrical set neck. I'm going to do an asymmetrical <laughs> set neck, which is like, that's insane. Why would anybody do that? I did it. You know why? Does it look good? It looks pretty good for a, for a first time. It looks really good. Um, but was that was that the smart thing to do? <laughs> no, it wasn't. But then once again, I, I don't think I'm very smart. So <laughs> you know, I, 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 I like a challenge. Okay, so the other part of it is you're a mm. composer. You write songs. I, I write songs. I don't know if you use any of your classical composition theories in, in whatever you do today, but you also write songs for different genres. Does that mm-hmm. is that inspired by projects or is that or recording projects or is that inspired by whatever comes to you and you say, Oh yeah, this is a cousin Harley song. Oh yeah, this is something I want to work with with somebody else. Yeah, it's better it's better that I it's funny because I'm in a real I'm in a real writer's block right now and I have been for the last couple of years. Um, but when they come out, they just come out and then I decide where they're gonna go. Um, and then I can, I can tailor them to whatever project I want to do. Like if I, it's funny on the, on the latest cousin Harley record, there's, there's one song that I was sure was going to be part of my boxcar campfire project. Um, but then I, and I recorded it for boxcar and I just, I left it on the, I left it on tape. I never bothered printing it. I wasn't really happy with it. And then I listened and I thought, well, let's try it with cousin Harley. And it's a bit of a departure for cousin Harley, but it's, it kind of works because it's, you know, we have these three very unique voices that are in Cousin Harley that, you know, everything kind of sounds the way it's supposed to sound when the three of us were playing together. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I let the song come out and then I figure out where it's going to go. Okay. So, is, is, and you said you were you're in the midst of a horrible writer's block. Does that worry you? I mean, do you not have a prosy coming out with Kevin Bright? Oh, we did, we finished one. Right. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, we did uh, the shut-ins, which is which is our. Although Kevin really wanted me to, 
Kevin, Kevin's a little bit like Tom Waits is that, you know, you really got to, everything he says, you got to take with a, with a grain of salt sometimes. Just no, no, no. Don't tell him we did it. We did it remotely. Don't tell him it's, don't, don't tell him it's a pandemic project. No, we were in like Bali. We were, we spent a week in Bali and we recorded it in, in you know, at a gum tree farm or something, you know? <laughs> Um, but you know, musically, like like little instrumental stuff, like I've never had a problem writing instrumental music. I can usually come up with something interesting, um, and it's not to not to like you know, Kevin's stuff is what really inspires me. But um, there's always like if I did I, I did one Cousin Harley record that was all instrumental, and on every Cousin Harley record, there's at least one or two instrumentals. I can write that stuff to the cows come home. That's no problem, especially in the hillbilly style. Um, it's lyrics. Lyrics are hard. I've never been a lyricist because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, what's the word I'm looking for? I am a, um, oh, there's a specific word. Anyway, it's, uh, I, I am not a willing participant as being a singer or I wasn't for many years. It's out of, although I love singing now, but, uh, you know, I wasn't those, one of those people that had to just express myself all the time, you know, um, so words are difficult. I find words very hard. So that's, that's so, the block that you were. That's the block. I have lots of little ideas, but to develop those into, you know, stories, which is kind of what I like. That's kind of how I write. I write story songs. So um, to develop them into stories is, I find tricky. Although I honestly have not had a lot of time to sit down and put pen to paper lately. So maybe I'll go through all those, those little one line things and, and come up with something. Maybe I'll just put them all in a hat. <laughs> so, but out. when you said, well, I'm going through <laughs> this phase right now, does it worry you? No, no, it doesn't. Because uh, I'm really happy with my guitar playing lately. You know, which you know, as a guitar player, that that ebbs and flows. And I love I love building guitars. So I, I I'm happy right now. I know that there'll be more songs. There'll be more songs. You know, they're just not. I also think the best songs I've ever written have always been the ones that literally just go blah, and there they are. I find yeah, that whole thing. concept so amazing when it just kind of goes through you. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of my songs that's that I do uh, with the Boxcar record, um, with the Boxcar project, is a song called Heartland, and it was written by my 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 friend Tolan McNeil, who lives on Vancouver Island. And I tell this story at almost every acoustic gig, and, and I, we all live together in in this in this house we, with Carolyn Mark, who is the self proclaimed queen of Vancouver Island, and uh, just one of the most entertaining and completely off the wall people I've ever met. She's a great singer songwriter, and uh, we all lived in this place. And it was called the Last Resort, and the Last Resort was was our house, but it was also it had a recording studio in the basement, and it was a flop house for any touring bands that were coming through Victoria at the time. Well, Tolan. Still to this day, his main job is he's a roofer. And one day, you know, he's my roommate at the time. And he and um, and uh, he was coming home from bringing a load of refuse to the Heartland dump, which is but 30 kilometers outside of Victoria, maybe 40 kilometers outside of Victoria. And he came in he's, and, and he's covered in grime and he's just messy. And he's got this crumpled up piece of tissue paper in his hands. And it's got all these words scribbled on. He says, I just wrote this on the drive home. And he sat down and played this song. And it is the most beautiful murder ballad. In fact, I, I, I quite often tell everybody, I said, this is the perfect murder ballad. If you're in the murder ballads, not everybody's in the murder ballads, but I, I like me a good murder ballad every once in a while. But it is the darkest yet most 
melancholy murder ballad I've ever heard. And he wrote it. It took him 30 kilometers. He wrote it over the drive of 30 kilometers. He literally wrote it down on this tissue paper, sat down, and it was all still in his head, and he played it. That's how fast the really good ones go. I've yet to have one that <laughs> That one's exceptional. But how do you explain that? I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's the stars align and the, the the music of the spheres is in your head. I don't know how that works. I don't know how it works. It's a mystery. Okay, you said before that you didn't really didn't have goals. Do you have goals now? Um do I have I could be really glib and say, well, hopefully not to end up on the streets by the time I'm by the time I'm 70, uh, which which is that's a goal. That's a goal. As a musician, that's a goal. Um, I don't you know, I just want to keep making music. That's all I've ever wanted to do. You know, um, people, you know, other people years ago, you want to be a rock star. I don't want to be a rock star. Um, I just want to be able to 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 pay the rent and, and, and you know. And, and be comfortable and have some respect for my peers and to continually create music. That's all I want to do. What gives you the greatest satisfaction? The greatest satisfaction? Yeah. Musically? Musically? Um, honestly, playing with my trio. I love it. I truly do love it. After 20 years. You know, uh, after same, and and um, I'm, on my third, I'm on my third drummer and I'm on my fourth bass player. Uh, every one of them has been best buds. We're all, you know, that's kind of the prerogative, that's prerequisite to be in, in, to be in my band is we all have to get along. We're never going to argue and we're always going to have a good time. You never argue? Never, never. If we do, I should, well, I've also, I also know it's my band. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I made this very clear many years ago in another band. I said, you know, this is not a democracy. This is, this is, this is a dictatorship and I and just consider me to be your Fidel Castro. Cause this is the way it's going to go. Now that doesn't mean I'm not going to listen to you guys, right. but when it, when it comes down to it, there, there has to be one person driving the bus and, and, the, and my guys, you know, uh, have always known that. And, and, you know, they've given me great suggestions and I, and I listen to them. Like, you know, I know that Jesse, uh, my drummer who's been with me for 20 years now, uh, Jesse want, has a place on Lesquiti Island. And I know he loves it there. So I, you know, I know he wants to take most of August to, to be on there. So I just said, you know what? I'm not going to book any gigs in August. Not for Cousin Harley. I'll book other gigs. Right. But I'll make sure that he has his time. It's about, I think if you respect everybody in your band and their, and their priorities, then they'll, they'll do the same. Okay, my final question. Okay. Um, with, with this amazing journey that you've been on, whether it be building guitars or playing rockabilly or going to school for classical composition or classical guitar. How do you summarize that journey of music for you? Um, how do I summarize it? It's, it's been a very interesting and, oh, there's a word, there's a word, um, lack, what, the opposite of specific. <laughs> it's been a very chaotic journey because I never knew where I was going to go. Um, but I allowed each new interest to have its moment. Right. Um, so if, if, if there's anything, the, the, 
to summarize the journey is that I've, I've indulged myself on every interest I've had. You know, uh, if I have, like when I got into Kevin, you know, like when I, well, the first time I saw Kevin, which was about 20 some odd years ago, you know, I had already had, I had cousin Harley going since 98. So I probably saw him in 99 or 2000. And was this with the sisters? Got, yeah, it was, it was when they were playing at the orbit. And, um, and I, you know, I, I allowed my, even though I went, nothing that I'm doing right now, this, this has nothing to do with what I'm playing right now and how I make my living, but I love it. So I just, you know, I worked on it by myself, you know, and then I started, I had a band that I only played around Vancouver with called the sign trio, which was the self-indulgent guitar night. So I could, <laughs> cause it was, it was truly, it was a wank fest. Oh, it was such a wank fest. But I would play whatever in, I wanted. In what genre? Oh, whatever I wanted. Um, okay. You know, like I, we, we, we do, and we mix stuff. Like I, you know, we, well, Kevin and I, we were, he just was just here in town. And, um, and we did, you know, a version of Radiohead's um, High and Dry, which was one of the tunes that I did back then. But then I would do, I would do Jimmy Bryant at that gig. And then I would do, I would do Michael Jackson at that gig. And then I would do Black Sabbath mixed with Thelonious Monk at that gig. And I do whatever the hell I want. That was the whole point. It's completely self-indulgent, right? Um, so, you know, it took a little time for that to come, but that, you know, was from the inspiration of Kevin. So yeah, whatever indulgence I have eventually will come out. You know, I'll do something with it. So yeah, it's self-indulgent. That's what the journey's been. They're very <laughs> self-indulgent. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure hey, getting to know you. Same here. And... Um, I'm going to be in Toronto sometime in June if you're around. Okay, yeah. If you feel like coming out, you know, if you feel like hearing some rockabilly, I think I'm playing the Dakota and maybe uh, hopefully going to get together with Kevin and hang out. Oh, good. Okay. I should ask, how did that project with Kevin come about? Oh, okay. So pandemic, right? Everything's shut down. Everybody doesn't know what to do. And I, as I've mentioned, I am no good at sitting, sitting around doing nothing. So I said, okay, well, I don't know how to use my computer to record, but I have this one. I have the, I have all the stuff, but I don't know how to use it. So, you know, there was a lot of people that said, man, I, you know, over the years that have said, Paul, I really want to record a record with you. You know, people from Ontario, from Quebec, from the States. And, and I said, great. All right. So I put the feelers out. I said, okay, you know what? You want to record a record with me? Let's record a record, whatever you want. I don't care what it is. Here's an idea. And I threw out ideas. Oh, oh, this is great, man. I'll get right back to you. And then, you know, I wait two weeks and I, oh, I forgot. I'm going to get back to you. Well, it's a pandemic. You're not, you're not out on tour. Like, what's the problem? Right. Like, it's if I, it's not that hard. So, you know what? And, and so I thought, okay, well, let's scrap that idea. Let's scrap that idea with the people that contacted me. Why don't I contact the people I want to record with? Uh, and I'd gotten to know Kevin over the years. And, um, I had a great bass player who was living in Palo Alto, California, um, that I used to work with and a drummer that I used to work with on Vancouver Island. So I just, I just sent Kevin a note and I said, you want to do a record? You interested in doing this record? This is the idea. The idea is that we just, uh, you know, if you want to write songs for it, great. If you don't, here's how it's going to work. I'm just going to record, record a track and I'll give you a tempo marking and you're going to do whatever you want on it. So I'm, I'm not giving anybody any kind of any kind of uh, guidance on what I think this song should sound like. 
And I said, I have a drummer in, in Victoria and I have a bass player in, in California. And within, within 12 hours, Kevin got back to me and said, I'm in. And I thought, okay, that's great. I've heard, I've had other people say they were in before. All right. Well, let's see if he's really in. So I sent him a track and it was like six hours later, boom, there's this response. It's like, Holy crap. Did you even listen to it? Like, how did you have that? How did you? And, and then I would hear it and I would go, well, that's just insane. So I got to write another one. <laughs> I set up another one and six hours later, boom, there it is again in my inbox. <laughs> and he's got, he's got his part already done. And it was amazing. And, and, uh, and I, I would send it to the rest you know, the rhythm section was really interesting because the bass player that I sent it to is Tommy Babbitt, who's a really, really amazing avant-garde jazz upright bass player. And what he and I said, I'm not telling you what he played, whatever you want to play. What he played was completely like country, country bass lines. And then the drummer, I, I sent him the track and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, okay, I hear this is I hear that in my head. And he and he brings it back as a uh, as a New Orleans funeral march. Hmm. And every tune was like that. And I loved it. And uh, but yeah, you know, Kevin was so prolific and so fast. It was so God, this guy's amazing. Because first of all, he's giving it the time. Yeah, yeah. That was what I that was not only of course I knew whatever he was gonna put down was gonna be insanely beautiful. Um, but that he gave it the time and I and like, oh Paul sent me something, boom, I'm gonna do it and send it right now. And where can we find this project? It's on Bandcamp. It's called the Shut Ins Three Ring Circus. Okay. I'll definitely check it out. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. It was really nice meeting you, Marco. <laughs> thank you so much. My pleasure.